attending all, all kinds of end-of-year events, uh, as well as doing those various things. We've been reading this book, as Liz said, the last in the Old Testament, uh, the book of Malachi. Uh, Malachi means messenger, you may know that, and Malachi has some mongrel, if you know what I mean. Uh, he doesn't muck around with pleasantries, uh, but he brings a heavy and a necessary word from the Lord to his people of old. And because God's word is living and active, it's not just a word for those people back then, but also a word for us uh, today. So as we've prayed, let's pray again uh, that we might hear it of right. Uh, great God, we, we thank you that you speak. We thank you that you are not a God who created, who spun things into existence and then left us alone to figure it out for ourselves. But we thank you that you make yourself known and we thank you that you show us through your word who you are and what it means to be yours. Uh, Heavenly Father, we pray that you would be ever softening our hearts, that we might hear your word and receive it as it is. Uh, not the word of man, uh, but your word, the word of God. Um, please be with us as we uh, seek to sit under your authority in Malachi 2 and 3 this afternoon. Amen. Uh, I was robbed this week, uh, robbed of sleep, uh, yeah, thunderstorm last night, yeah, all the little kids were, were awake and the dog was going crazy and our two-year-old has learned to climb out of the cot in the early hours of the morning. Robbed, I was robbed. Uh, I, was, I was robbed of time, interruptions, you have these during the day, uh, robbed because the world revolves around me, really. Uh, but I was also actually, you know, robbed in money was taken out of my bank account uh, this week. A message came through the phone, suspect transactions. And you get a message like that and, you, and you, you're sceptical, aren't you? But I had a look at the ComBank app anyway, and, and sure enough, someone in Dublin of all places is robbing me. Uh, justice will be done, the bank assured me. Uh, or at least I should get my money back, which, to be honest, is all I care about, because uh, the world revolves around me. I, I, I was robbed. I, I realise that's a minor injustice, a very minor injustice. It wasn't a lot of money. Uh, but we do hate to see injustices go unchecked, uh, don't we? Uh, especially when they affect us, me. Uh, and, and I'm sure you can list off a whole host of of injustices, some more distant to us, but some very close to home. I, I know that some of you have suffered significant injustices in your lives. The God of the Bible very clearly says that he is concerned for justice. Because God is a just God, he cares about right and he cares about wrong. In fact, he claims that he says what is right and what is wrong. But you noticed as Steve was reading from Malachi, the people back in Malachi's day, they didn't think so. You see chapter 2, verse 17, we read, You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil 
are good in the eyes of the Lord and is pleased with them? Or where is the God of justice? You reckon that's a fair accusation? Is God just? Does God approve of of evil? And it wasn't just a question in Malachi's day. It's a common question in our day as well, isn't it? If God is loving, how is it that he allows injustice? And some suggest that his apparent inactivity on this is an argument that he doesn't exist at all. You remember the context, the people in Malachi's day, that they've returned to the promised land, having been living in exile. Uh, they had high hopes, a, a rebuilt temple. Temple worship is, is back underway again, and they expected the Lord to, to show up in a glorious way. They were waiting for, they were anticipating the day of the Lord when he would bring justice, at least from you know, their point of view. But their experience was nothing of the sort. People were just looking after number one. They were ripping others off, robbing them, doing whatever they could to get their own way and get away with it. What what were they to conclude? Is God on the side of the wicked as they prosper? I reckon it's always worth saying that God does allow his people to ask him hard questions. As we struggle with the realities of this life, we see that a lot in the Psalms, don't we? Crying out to God, what are you doing, God? How are we to make sense of all that's going on in this life? But Malachi says that they were wearying the Lord with their words. It doesn't seem to be faith-seeking understanding. Help me make sense of this, Lord but instead just an entitled, selfish, dummy spit. Instead of asking God, what are you doing with us in this situation? How are we to make sense of this mess? They were spitting the dummy like an entitled, temperamental and tantruming young adult or a grumpy old man. Well, God answers them, doesn't he? Chapter 3, verse 1, I'll send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. So the Lord's saying, no, I haven't. I haven't ditched my people. I will turn up and I will put things right. I'll send my messenger to to prepare the way. You you know that in the ancient Near East where Malachi is is set, a a king, if if they were to go and visit a place, a a delegation would be sent ahead. A messenger would be sent ahead to to prepare the town for the coming of the king, the, the royal visit. Once the messenger had done their job, the king would would come, would arrive. In this case, it would be the Lord himself. You see, the Lord you are seeking is also the messenger of the covenant. They desire that they're one and the same person. And so that delegation is sent, that the messenger is sent ahead. The king is coming. Get ready. 
And then following behind the Lord, the messenger of the covenant arrives. And if you're someone who, you know, you've been reading your Bible perhaps over the years, you you may know that ultimately this is fulfilled in John the Baptist, the messenger who was to prepare the way for Jesus, who was to arrive, the king who was to come. But the questions raised, you, you notice this, do you really want this visit? You people in Malachi's day, they might think that they want the Lord to bring justice. They're crying out for justice. We're sick of these injustices. But when they realise what God will do when he turns up, you see the beginning of chapter 3, verse 2 there, just the beginning of verse 2, but who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? God does not approve of evil. He is just. He does care about right and wrong. So when he shows up, no one will measure up to his standard. You're crying out for justice, but do you really know what that means? Notice in verse 2, though, he doesn't come to destroy here but to purify, to clean. Uh, We we picture the metal worker. I don't know if you can picture a metal worker burning away all the rubbish, the dirt and the impurities. And and out comes the the purified gold and, and silver. Or we picture the washing being done and there's not a single stain left. The whitest of whites. He, he comes to purify and see the, the purification. It begins with the leadership. Back in Malachi's day, verse 3, the the Levites, they were the tribe of Israel that the priests came from. You know, there were those 12 tribes. And the Levites had the priests come from them. And you might recall, if you've been reading Malachi over the last number of weeks, the priests were dodgy. They weren't even teaching the people to live God's way. They were terrible leaders. If a community is to be transformed, you begin with the leadership. And then the rest of the community benefits. You see, verse 3 and 4, we read, Then the Lord will have men who bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord, as in the days gone by, as in former years. Maybe back in King David's day. They're to take this warning. If they're to take this warning on board in that original context, that they'll stop giving the Lord their rubbish, their blind and lame animals, their leftovers, and they'll give him their best. It's interesting, though, isn't it? Because the people's observation of what's going on in this world around them, it led them to question is God just? But in verse 5 we see the Lord rejects that accusation that he is not just. So I will come and put you on trial, says the Lord. The sins of those who are on trial or are judged in verse 5, you notice that they sort of cover the entire range from more personal sins like sorcery, adultery, perjury, to social injustice, like oppressing the weak and the, the powerless. It, what's clear is that with the possible exception of sorcery, 
Each sin listed by Malachi, it's relational, relational in nature. Sin hurts. Sin exploits. Sin oppresses others. It doesn't just affect me. And they're sinning so blatantly against others, particularly those who are weaker than them. Why? You see the end of verse 3, because they don't fear God. They don't fear the Lord who had rescued them from slavery in Egypt. The Lord who made them into a nation set apart to be holy to him that everyone else might see, that those watching on might see and turn to him as well. Their main motivation for crying out for justice is to look after me. And by taking the Lord out of the picture, they're not answerable to anyone. See, if there is no God, who says what's right and what's What's wrong? We get to make our own call, don't we? And most often it will be a selfish one. I know that mine will be because the world revolves around me. And as we stand here this afternoon, well, I'm standing, you're sitting. As we're here this afternoon, our observation could lead us to ask the same question. Is God just? Does God approve of evil? Even though we've had that first coming of Jesus, which we're looking forward to it at Christmas time, justice has not fully and finally been done. And the promise of the Bible is that there will be a second coming of, of Jesus, that he will return and he will call everyone to account. You know this verse, it's worth memorising really uh, to Peter 3 verse 9 where the apostle Peter he says the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises as some understand slowness instead he's patient with you not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance as we cry out for justice and accuse the Lord in our context of not caring Are we really ready for justice to be done? Are you ready for justice to be done? Because the Lord does care about right and wrong. Why do we not see justice fully and finally done now? The Lord is giving people opportunity to turn to him and be saved. And if you haven't yet put your trust in Jesus, well, now's your opportunity. That's why the program of the local church all over the world is to go and make disciples while waiting for Jesus' return. Our struggle with life, our observation of the world might lead us to think that God has changed. But you see verse 6 and 7, this is a beautiful verse. I, the Lord, do not change. 
So you, the descendants of Jacob, you remember Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, God's chosen people, you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Because he made a covenant, a, a contract. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me and I'll return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Do you not find that really quite remarkable? Instead of finally being done with those dodgy Israelites, the Lord graciously invites them back into relationship. His word to his people is not just one of judgment. He also offers salvation. And it's the same, isn't it, with the message of Jesus all these years later, that the gospel brings judgment because Jesus does expose sin and injustice. But for those who are willing to admit their sin and be changed by God so that Jesus is in charge, Jesus rules my life, he offers salvation. Uh, we send, um, I send a weekly email. Call it the weekly email. Uh, and the purpose of it is to keep you in the loop with what's going on in the life of church. And perhaps some of you read it occasionally. It's not a very long email. Uh, very occasionally someone responds and I think, wow, someone read it. Uh, this week it was my wife, Jen. Thanks, Jen. Give her a clap. So Thursday afternoon it comes out, don't be afraid to hit reply. Uh, It's nice to know that someone's read it. Uh, This week I put in the line from verse 7, return to me and I'll return to you, says the Lord Almighty. What, What a promise. And Jen replied with, how? It's a good question, isn't it? It's the question that's asked in the text. How are we to return to you, the people ask? It's a great question. I don't think they were genuine in asking it. But the Lord essentially says to his people of old, stop robbing me. The Lord required the Israelites, you know this, to set apart a a tenth or a tithe of all their produce and their income to support the Levites. They didn't do it. They accused God of injustice, not because they cared about right and wrong. They weren't living out what was right. They were actively disobeying the Lord. And it seems they didn't care. They just cared about themselves. They felt robbed. Life's not going the way I want it to, God. How dare you? But they were in fact robbing the God who made them, the God who rescued them from slavery in Egypt, the God who was in relationship with them. And God invites them to repent, to come back to him. What an invitation. 
When uh, Ben Patterson and his wife Loretta were first married, they, they, they really struggled uh, financially to make ends meet. Uh, and Ben was selling pools at, at the time, and I'm guessing it wasn't in Queensland, because he only sold two pools in six months. At one Saturday morning, the, the company asked Ben to pick up a cheque uh, for a pool that, that had been sold by another salesperson. Uh, Ben's words, the, the man who bought the pool was a Christian. He was friendly and he insisted that we have a cup of coffee before uh, giving us the cheque. As we sipped uh, from our mugs, uh, he launched into a talk about the joys of giving 10% of one's income to the work of God's kingdom. Great. At first I was puzzled, but I put up with it. And, you know, so we could get the check and get out of there. But as the minutes passed, I found myself feeling more and more like he had read my mind or my mail. It had been years since I'd given much to anything but my own whims and desires. I guess the world revolves around me. I'd felt vaguely uneasy about my selfishness. But now I was feeling something different. It wasn't guilt. It was more like longing. But for what? Had I been asked to name it, I would have said I was longing for freedom. And as they sort of drove away from that house, Ben and Loretta, they they started to talk with each other, you you know, uh, about what the bloke had said. And and they decided to give that tithing thing a go. But it wasn't just tithing that was at stake, said Ben. We were really choosing freedom that day. It's interesting, isn't it? Tithing, I mean, this side of the cross, there's no longer a requirement to give a a tithe. Uh, Since Jesus, the bar for giving has been raised much higher than a tenth. But but as an old friend of ours says, uh, when you're giving more than your tenth, come and talk to me. And God actually doesn't really want our money. He wants everything. We belong to him. As we were reminded last week, uh, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I wonder as you reflect on the uh, extravagant generosity of God through the person and work of Jesus, God the Father sending God the Son into this messed up world that we might be reconciled to him. As you sit with that, might you consider how he wants you to be a whole lot more generous, like he is. How he wants us to be free from slavery to possessions and money, free from serving ourselves, me as number one, And just be generous. Perhaps it's time to look at the finances again. But also, more broadly, is there some way that you need to return to God this afternoon?
knowing that promise that he will return to you. In a moment, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper where we remember the the death of Jesus in our place. And I invite you to reflect that way. Is there some way you need to return to the Lord this afternoon? Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we just want to pause now and uh, we thank you that you are a just God. Uh, that you created a world that was good and that the mess that we see, the injustice that we observe and experience is a result of sin. But even as we struggle with that and we cry out, what is going on, Lord? How do we make sense of this? We thank you that you are not slow in keeping your promises, but that you are patient with us and with the people across this world that many might turn and be saved until Jesus returns when justice will fully and finally be done. Lord, forgive us for robbing you thinking that the world revolves around us, that we can rule our own lives and call the shots and set the agenda. And we pray that you would help us return to you. And we do that this afternoon, asking your forgiveness for living our way and not your way. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us now live for you And enjoy you, that we might experience the freedom that your generosity in Jesus shows us and gives us. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who would rather die for us than live without us. And we thank you that in Jesus we see Justice done, your wrath turned upon your son in our place. That your love does what your justice requires. And so we give ourselves to you as we reflect on all that Jesus did on that cross. We pray in his name. Amen. Uh, So 